Turn with me if you would in your copy of God's Word, and I hope you have your copy with you, uh, to Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. Is it possible to get some more light up here? Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of one of the chairs around you, and you can find Luke chapter 2 on page 725 of the chair Bible. Ah, I can see my Bible. That is wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Follow along with me as I read to you Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. To present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again turn to you in prayer and want to ask your blessing on this time. Lord, as a church, I pray that you would give us a sense of awe, that we would never cease to be amazed at you and at your salvation, that we would wonder and marvel at this, this gift of Jesus Christ, eternally God, becoming part of creation, taking on real flesh without ceasing to be God, that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to reconcile us to yourself through Christ. May we always stand in awe of that. Lord, we want to pray for uh, Crazy Love Church here in Walla Walla as they continue to seek how to minister the gospel. Lord, we pray that, we, that you would make them and us faithful to your word, faithful to your plan, faithful to the gospel. That you would bless them and us accordingly, according to our, our faithfulness, Lord. And that the word, your word, the gospel of Jesus Christ would sound forth both from them and from us. That the world around us, not, not just Walla Walla and, and here in the valley, but throughout the whole world might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would draw people to yourself through that. Lord, as we turn now to your word and to seek to understand it, we ask that you would give us open eyes and clear minds and your word. Lord, we ask for soft hearts that we might be responsive 
to your word and obedient to it. We ask all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. Providentially, uh, we come to this passage today. And it had been in my intention to preach this message last week, but then uh, I was exposed to COVID and had a COVID test, and uh, Thad stepped up graciously and preached in, in my absence, and, and I wanted to finish this out, and so uh, I went ahead and preached uh, the last section of Luke chapter 2 last week, and now we come to this section of, of Luke chapter 2 this week, and I think um, I was kind of like, I was a little disappointed, you know, I really wanted to to maybe have a sermon that would set the tone for Trinity for 2021. And God in his providence doing what only he can do far better than I can uh, brought us to this passage. And I think it's an excellent way for us to start the new year. And I would ask us this morning to stop and think. And I'm going to pause after I ask this question. I want you to genuinely think of this in your own mind. Why... Does the church exist? What is the church for? What is its purpose? I think before we can understand the purpose of the church, we have to first understand the the purpose of the believer, or, or really anybody, because the church is just a gathering of people. What is the chief end of man? That's the question that the Westminster Confession or Westminster Catechism asks. And here is the Westminster Divine's answer to that question. I think it's a brilliant one. They say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think there's a connection between those two ideas. How do we best glorify God? We best glorify Him by enjoying Him. But by very definition of what it means to be God, there cannot be anything that exists that is more enjoyable than God. There is nothing more beautiful, nothing more uh, majestic. Nothing more wonderful or amazing or awe-inspiring. Nothing more glorious than the God we serve. And therefore, there is nothing that should give us greater joy and pleasure and delight than God. If there's something out there that is more glorious, more beautiful, more enjoyable, that thing must be God. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, when we say we glorify God, does that mean we can make him more glorious than he actually is? No, not at all. I think one of the helpful things here to understand what it means to glorify God is the difference between a microscope and a telescope. What's the purpose of a microscope? Microscopes make very, very small things look very, very big. They allow us to see what is very small. Telescopes, on the other hand, make very, very big things look like they actually are. We had uh, this uh, alleged Christmas star recently that was made up of a couple of planets. Imagine being the first person, I just picked Saturn, for example, because the rings are so far different than anything we experience. Imagine being the first person to see the rings of Saturn. Anybody know who that was or what year? It was Galileo Galilei, 1610, looking through a telescope, sees Saturn's rings. 
Now, what do you think he did as soon as he saw that? Went home and said, man, I don't want to share this with anybody. I'm keeping this discovery to myself. Of course not. Here he sees this majestic and glorious planet in, in a much closer view to what it actually looks like. I imagine upon looking through the telescope and seeing Saturn, seeing this yellowish planet, seeing its rings, seeing its multiple moons probably even, he probably went out and told every astronomer buddy he had and maybe even people who weren't astronomers and said, hey, hey, come look, come see this thing that I saw. Come see how glorious it is. Come see how big it is. Come see it for what it actually is. That's how we maximize the glory of God. We don't, we don't make him something he's not. We see him through his word and by his spirit for what he actually is. And then the only logical response to that is to go tell others, come and see what I have seen. You won't believe this. He'll blow your mind. It's more beautiful than anything you could have imagined. This God far off, you didn't even know he was there. You thought he was back in the sky. I've seen him for who he is, and I'm here to tell you he's wonderful, and he's glorious, and he is majestic, and we maximize the glory of God so that others might join in in enjoying him. The church, our salvation, every person, it all exists for worship, but it doesn't exist to hoard worship. It exists to invite others into worship with us. Why, why, when we got saved, didn't God just immediately transport us into glory and rescue us from this miserable world? He left us here to worship, not only individually as we live out our lives, but corporately as we gather for the church and to invite other people in to worship. What is the end, the end of missions? Why do we have a missions commission? Why do we send money to missionaries who go to other parts of the world? The end of missions is worship. They go and they tell others about Jesus. They say, come look through this telescope. See who he is. See this glorious God who, who, who I have seen. And come worship me, or we're, not worship me, worship with me, this God whom we serve. Missions exist for worship. Evangelism exists for worship. The church here on earth exists not only to worship God, but to invite others into that worship as well so that we might maximize the glory of God, not in that we make him more glorious, but in that we invite more and more people to see this glorious God whom we have come to serve. And here in this passage Simeon shows us who Jesus is and that we're called to worship him. And he even shows us what the end of all people is. And the motivation that comes out of this ought, ought to be for us to invite as many others into the worship of Jesus as we can. Verses 22 through 24 set the scene uh, I'll read those again to you. And when the time came for their purification, we'll explain that in a minute, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. That is, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to the temple to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who, opens, who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there's the scene. Let's imagine the scene here for a moment. Now, Mary and Joseph, Jesus has been born, and they're going to the temple to present him there. We'll talk in a little bit about how old Jesus is at this point. But the Old Testament is full of laws and regulations on worship, on how the nation is to conduct itself, on many, many things. It's full of laws. on, And all of those laws, by the way, Paul tells us in Galatians, they all exist to show us that we're lawbreakers. They all exist to show us that we need a savior. They all exist to show us just how, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, this, this is, uh, it's, it's obvious in our hearts, right? As soon as some, you know, as soon as we're, we, we see some sign that imposes a law, let's just say a speed limit sign, some of us begin to calculate, well, how far can I press this? without getting in trouble. Well, you know, and really, I feel, conv- I do that, but I feel convicted about it sometimes. I'm driving down the street, I see the, or the highway, it says 55 miles an hour, I'm thinking, I can do 60 without getting pulled over. And really, the sin in my own heart that, that wells up when I do that, it's just impatience. I'm just being impatient. And so, so I see this law, and I, I immediately think, how far can I push it? Well, we are lawbreakers, fallen, sinful creatures by nature who have broken God's law, and it's so built into us that, that we just naturally want to press the laws. I'm, I'm telling you, and I think any of us who have had kids would, would know, uh, disobedience is the only thing you don't have to teach your children. They come knowing how to do that. We're, we're all broken. And we're all lawbreakers. And so all of these laws existed not only to protect God's people, to instruct God's people, but to reveal to us that we are inherently lawbreakers. Uh, Many of the laws dealt with cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, I think most of those laws, and and it's important for our text today, there were certain things that would make a person unclean, having come in contact with a dead body and various other things. Uh, these, uh, These laws of uncleanness... They were not humiliating in that culture. If I were to have, if we lived in that day and age and I would have said, hey, I'm going to the temple, which is like inviting you to church. Do you want to come with me? You might say, no, I'm, I, I came in contact with a dead body last week or uh, came in contact with mold or who knows what it was. There was lots of, lots of laws. And you might say, I'm unclean. I can't go to the temple. This would have not been a humiliating thing. It was never intended to humiliate people. It was intended to show us that what God demands when we enter his presence is perfection and cleanness from sin. And, and so when, when, we, when laws had been broken or certain conditions had been broken, you couldn't come in to the temple. One of the things that left someone unclean was having a baby. Because there's blood involved and various other things. And so there was a time given for purification. This is ceremonial purification where the person, the the mom and the baby could then enter the temple. So let me see if I can sum up these laws. And there's there's two uh, Old Testament passages that are really being packed into these verses. And that's Genesis 17 and Leviticus 12. You can look at those later, but let me sum them up. These, uh, these have to do with the birth of a baby. So uh, when a baby is born, the woman becomes ceremonially unclean, and she is not allowed then to enter the temple. The first period of her uncleanness, 
lasts for seven days if, if the child is a boy and 14 days if the child is a girl. Now, uh, I'm here to tell you that is not an insult to women. Scripture does not really tell us why. There are some theories out there. I have some thoughts on it. It's probably not really uh, something that we have time to give ourselves to today. But, but it doesn't have anything to do with a boy being better than a daughter or anything like that. Uh, we need to remove our thoughts on that from it. But, but uh, well, I'll just tell you, I think likely the reason the purification times are double for a girl is because not only does the mom have to go through a purification period, but the daughter does as well because laws on uncleanness are different for men and women, and so it just wasn't an insult uh, at all. But uh, after eight days, uh, if it was a male child, so seven days of uncleanness, on, and on the eighth day, the baby boy would have been circumcised and named. Again, mom is unclean initially for seven days if the child is a male, and 14 days if the child is a female. And then mom remains unclean. She can't go to the temple for 33 days if it's a male child, a boy, and for 66 days if the child is a female. So for a son, mom cannot go into the temple for 40 days, and for a daughter, she cannot go to the temple for 80 days. Now, after this purification time, 40 days for a male, 80 days for a female, uh, mom, dad, and baby would go to the temple and a lamb would be sacrificed. Now, especially so if it were the firstborn child, that's coming out of the Exodus when the firstborn child of Egypt was all killed and the firstborn child of the Israelites uh, lived. And so uh, God said, Your first, the firstborn child of anything, whether it's cattle or donkey or sheep or, uh, or, or child, belongs to me. But then he made provisions for that child to be purchased back. So the first male child could be purchased back uh, from service to God uh, at a price. An example of somebody who did not buy their child back would be Hannah when she left Samuel with Eli. Uh, she, rather than purchasing him back because he was to be devoted to the service of the Lord, she took him to the temple and he served in the temple, uh, or really uh, with, uh, with Eli uh, for his whole um, for his whole childhood even. Anyways, uh, I digress. So here, uh, after the purification time, a lamb was sacrificed. And then there was a provision in the law that said if you're too poor to sacrifice a lamb, you can bring either two pigeons or two doves. Uh, one probably being a uh, burnt offering and one probably being a um, a sin offering. But uh, who knows why, but if you were too poor to have and bring and sacrifice a lamb. There was a provision for you in the law to bring two doves or two pigeons. So here Jesus is 41 days old. He's been circumcised at eight days old. He's been named. Uh, Mary and Jesus have gone through their purification period. Uh, it's the 41st day, and Jesus is bring, being brought to the temple for this sacrifice. And we're told that they brought a pair of turtle doves uh, or pigeons because they were too poor to bring a lamb. I think, I think this is actually a pretty amazing picture for us. It might seem like minutia in, in detail. Luke, why are you giving this to us? And I think the answer is found in what Jesus came to do. We are inherently lawbreakers, and he was not. We are inherently unwilling to follow God's rule and law, and he is inherently 
willing to follow. He came to live as a human and to perfectly obey the law of God because we cannot. And then at 33 years old, having perfectly obeyed God's law, being not guilty, being not a lawbreaker, owing no consequence of death, which was the penalty for breaking God's law, he dies in our place. The not guilty for the guilty. The righteous for the unrighteous. He is, he is treated with contempt. He is punished by God, stricken and afflicted, as we're told in Isaiah 53. Though he did not deserve it, he is treated as a lawbreaker so that us, being lawbreakers, can be treated like he deserved. And so even, even at a, as for a 41-day-old baby, even before that as an eight-day-old baby, his parents gave incredible attention and detail to obedience to the law. Even the parts of the law that he would have at this point been powerless to uphold himself, his parents perfectly upheld. So that from his birth to eight days old to 41 days old to 33 years old and the cross, when he goes to the cross to bear the consequence for our sins, he is perfect in terms of the law. And so we find here that this baby, 41 days old, his parents are perfectly keeping the law. That's the scene. Now Luke introduces us, starting in verse 25, to the characters. Now we've already met uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. As we looked last week, Jesus was born, but now a character is added. So uh, they're in the temple 41 days after Jesus' birth. They're there to sacrifice uh, a couple of birds because they're poor. And there was, verse 25, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now we know very, very little about Simeon. I don't think it's likely that he was a priest. He was not on duty in the temple. He was just led to go to the temple by the Holy Spirit to meet this child. But we, so we don't know his age. I think oftentimes we think of him as an old man. That's not told to us in the text. We know nothing about Simeon other than these few things. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Righteous refers to holy living. Simeon was a man obedient to God. He was a man who, who was determined in his heart and mind to follow God's laws, knowing that they were good, knowing that they were for his protection. He was righteous, but he was also devout. This wasn't just an external obedience to the law. He wasn't simply being uh, complicit or, or compliant, rather, to the law out of uh, not wanting to be punished or out of some kind of fear or some kind of external motivation. No, he was righteous in terms of God's law, though not perfect. He still needed a savior. And that's what this baby is for. But he was also devout. He loved God. He delighted in God's word and in God's law. He understand that God's law was not, not, not restrictive of his happiness, but designed for it. It doesn't take much research. I'll let you do it on your own to find that those who live their lives in the greatest degree and, and amount of violation to God's word often find themselves the most unhappy. 
This man loved God and was righteous, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you've ever heard of the Holy Spirit called the paraclete or the helper, that's the word, but in verb form, uh, or or really really noun form, it's kind of confusing in Greek, but anyways, uh, for consolation here, uh, he was awaiting the comfort of Israel. He was awaiting the consolation of Israel. He was awaiting the, the, um, the help of Israel. He was looking for the Messiah. He was looking for God's rescuer. And it shouldn't surprise us that the one who was waiting for the consolation of Israel had the consoler upon him. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So that we get a picture of his character there. This is a man who loved the Lord and was awaiting God's rescue from condemnation. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And, verse uh, 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He knew the time was now. He knew the time was near. The Holy Spirit had showed him that he would not die before seeing the Lord's Christ. I'm thinking of looking at Daniel uh, for Easter and, and seeing Daniel's predictions of the timing of Christ's arrival and death at his triumphal entry. But needless to say, it's not outside of what's, what we find in Scripture to see that, that he would have known this would be about the time. But what he doesn't know is how, uh, how long he's going to live, when he's going to die. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. But the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. This is not some uh, crazy kind of thing here. This simply means, Luke is telling us, that the Holy Spirit providentially led Simeon to go to the temple at this particular time. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, we can assume by revelation of the Holy Spirit from the previous phrase that that the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that this baby was him. He's here, the one you've been looking for, the helper, the consoler, the comforter, the one who is here to rescue us from all of our disobedience and the penalty of death that comes because of it. He's here. This is him. The, child, or the parents brought the child in to do for him according to the custom of the law. And Simeon, having had this revealed by the Holy Spirit, these must have been trusting parents because he came to the parents. He probably explained to him who he was and what he thought of this child. And of course, they knew who this child was. And he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said. All right, now we get to, uh, to see Simeon's two sayings here. And I, and I want to I look at these two sayings, but before I do, I want to ask this question, or I want to make this point. This was not a chance meeting. The Holy Spirit providentially, divinely, powerfully brings Simeon to the temple at this particular time to meet the Christ, to meet Mary and Joseph. Do you believe that you ever have any chance meetings? Or do you believe that God is providentially 
having filled you as a believer with his spirit, providentially orchestrating meetings so that you might introduce them to the Messiah. There is no chance meetings, no chance neighbors, no chance friendships. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your job, whether it's your neighbor's family, co-workers, acquaintances, or maybe even just someone you run into at the coffee shop who you strike up a conversation with, you have an opportunity to invite them to look into the telescope. Come and see what I've seen. Come and marvel at what I have marveled at. Why does the church exist? It exists to do spiritual good for others. It exists to do spiritual good for others. Who knows, who knows Jesus? Well, let me rephrase that. Well, no, I think that's a fair question. Who knows Jesus because you are willing to tell them about him? Or who loves Jesus more today because you're in their life? Nobody in this, is in this room accidentally. Nobody is in your growth group accidentally or your adult Bible class, or your neighborhood, or street. I hope there are many who, who because of you, would say, I know Jesus, or I love Jesus more. And this is why Trinity exists, right? We exist to meet people where they are at and invite them to taking next steps, to being wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. I got news for us. Most non-believers aren't in church anymore. We've got to go where they're at, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, maybe even into our families, on our streets, in our coffee shops, and tell people, come, take a look. Look inside this telescope and see this wonderful thing we have seen. But here's Simeon, verse 8, verse 28. He picks up this baby in his arms, and he gives us two sayings, and we're going to look at these two sayings of Simeon fairly quickly. The first is pure wonder, pure awe, pure amazement at this child. And the second is a warning. So let's look first at Simeon's wonder. Verse 29, he said, again, I would say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. Depart here is a euphemism for die. Lord, I have seen your Christ. I have seen the Messiah. I have seen the comfort of Israel. I can die peacefully now. Let me ask a question, a bold question, if I may. Do you think Christians' response to COVID and churches' response to COVID is showing the world that we fear death or that we can depart in peace? I don't know that I've got a right, any answer for that. I don't know that that makes me think that there's a certain right or wrong thing to do. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ to be your righteous law keeper where you have broken the law, all death can do to you is deliver you to Jesus. Paul, I don't know what's better, to stay and be of spiritual good for you or to depart and be with the Lord. And then he said, well, I know which one is better. It's better to be with the Lord. 
But the Lord has left me here. Why? To do spiritual good for others. In this life, our aim is to do spiritual good for others. And then when God calls us to depart of COVID or cancer or a car wreck or anything else, all death can do is deliver us to Jesus, deliver us to glory, deliver us to perfection, where there is no sadness, no sickness, no death, no sorrow. Simeon, oh Lord, now because of this baby, your servant can depart in peace according to your word. Verse 34, my eyes have seen your salvation. Again, he was not looking. We've seen this over and over. He's not looking for a ruler. He's looking for a savior. Uh, my eyes have seen. Note that he does not say, my eyes have seen your savior. No, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is not just the provider of our salvation. He is salvation. You cannot have salvation apart from Jesus because it's not something he merely provides, it's who he is. If you have Jesus, you have salvation. And without Jesus, there is no salvation. He doesn't just bring us salvation like a waiter brings a meal to your table. No, he brings us himself does that not add incredibly to the imagery of taking communion? It's just bread and juice. But it's a picture that we have not just received uh, something that God has provided for us, that we have received him, that he himself is our righteousness and our peace. And then in verse 31, Simeon makes a statement that would have offended many, many Jews. This is the salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Wait a minute. The Messiah is supposed to be just for the Jews. He's supposed to rout our enemies. We don't want anything to do with the Gentiles. In Acts 10, chapter 28, as the apostles are beginning to, to spread the gospel to those who are non-Jews, Acts, uh, Acts, Acts chapter 10, verse 28 says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful, listen to that word, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That wasn't God's law, by the way. That was their law. The Savior wasn't supposed to be for all people. He's just for the Jews. Acts 10, 28. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And no person can be unclean. No person who coming to Jesus is left unclean and outside of the temple. Think about that. Is there somebody in the world whose struggle with sin you would find uncomfortable if they were in this room? No person is common. No person is unclean. This salvation has been prepared, this baby has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then in verse 32, we get a little bit of Hebrew parallelism here, which is kind of two statements that say something similar but different. 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That is, those who couldn't see the salvation of God before, they can see it now. What was hidden is now revealed. What was unseen is now seen. This child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He's going to light it up and show the Gentiles. We should be praising God for this, because I'm pretty sure that's every single one of us in this room that this baby has shown us this salvation prepared in the presence of all people. And not just light for revelation to the Gentiles, also glory. Glory in Greek is a, is a light-associated word. In Hebrew, it's a weight-associated word. In Hebrew, uh, glory is heavy. Like Marty McFly saying all the time, that's heavy. And Doc says, is there something wrong with Earth's gravitational pull? That's the Hebrew idea of glory. The Greek idea of glory is light. Light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. This is the Savior for all who would trust him. It does not matter what somebody's ethnicity is, what their class is, what their gender is, what their criminal record is, what sin they struggle with. Everyone who comes to Jesus in faith and receives him is now clean, welcome, brought into the fellowship of the church and into the presence of God. Simeon was marveling at this baby, the savior of the whole world. But it wasn't just Simeon who marveled at this. Look at verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Oh, look at the scene. Simeon in the temple the place designed for the worship of God, Mary and Joseph, his earthly mother and earthly stepfather, worshiping the baby in the temple. What an incredible scene. We too must worship Jesus. What is the chief end of man? It is worship. What does the church exist for? Worship. Why are you saved? That you might worship. Why do we invite others to come marvel at the baby? So that they might worship. Why do we pay missionaries to go? Why should you consider going? Worship. We want to invite people in to the worship of Christ. But it's not just marvel and worship that happens here. Simeon gives a warning. And it's a sharp warning. Look at verses 34 and, 40, 34 and 35. This is Simeon's warning, point two on your outline there. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother and father, Behold, look, take notice. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. There is only two outcomes C.S. of all people. C.S. Lewis said, you have never met a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. Everybody you've ever come in contact with has an eternal soul. And that eternal soul has one of two ends. It is either rising with Christ to the heights of glory or falling and stumbling 
on the rock of offense. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if he is your salvation, if it is his righteousness you are accounting on to be uh, approved of by God and not your own, you have already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 1 Peter 2, 4-8, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's only two ends for all people to either believe and be raised up with Christ to the heights of glory or to reject and to trip and to fall and to stumble. This child, Simeon says, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This is a reference to his death. The Jews saw Jesus' death as a sign of his weakness his failure. Simeon saw it as a sign that he was the Messiah. It wasn't that he came to live, he came to die in our place. And it was a sign that would cut Mary right to the core. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Imagine being charged as a young virgin, to give birth to the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, and then to raise him, and to care for him, and to protect him, and to live those 33 years, or almost 34 years, under the weight of that responsibility, and then to stand by while he was brutally beaten and crucified and mocked and tortured. Oh, this, this sign of his death, a sign of, of his failure to those who would reject him, but of his success to those who would receive him, it cut through her heart also. So that, this is the last of verse 35, so that the thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. There is nothing more revealing about a person than what they believe about Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important about you than what you believe about Jesus Christ. And Jesus is polarizing, isn't he? I mean, the real Jesus. The world loves this soft, unoffensive, polite, cultured, maybe even a little bit effeminate, Swedish Jesus. That's not who he was. He was offensive. They wanted to kill him. 
they did kill him. His own brothers enticed him to go to Jerusalem and to be killed. The Jews, the Pharisees, plotted with the Herodians, their ultimate enemies. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pharisees were so against Jesus that they were willing to cooperate with with, with the Herodians to get him killed. I mean, imagine in our day and age, someone so polarizing, so hated, that the far right and the far left of our political world came together in utter unity just to execute this one person. That's how polarizing Jesus was. People either love him or hate him. They receive him or they reject him. His death is either a sign of his victory or it's rejected as a sign of his weakness. But either way, Jesus is offensive. He is polarizing. And people will either fall to their demise on the stone of offense or they will be raised to the heights of glory and seated with him in the heavenly places. But if you have trusted him, if you have believed in him, you are seated with him and death can do nothing but deliver you to him. And so my question for you today is, what will happen to you when you die? What do you believe to be true in your heart about Jesus? And maybe even more importantly, what happens to people you come in contact with? What is the spiritual state and end of your neighbors and of your coworkers and of your buddies who do whatever with you, whatever activities? Have they even been given the opportunity to receive and be raised up or to stumble and fall? What they do with the gospel is never our responsibility. What is our responsibility is to go to our our friends and neighbors and say, look and see. Look and see. Come marvel with me. If that idea scares you, next week, Pastor Chris's class, go get some help learning how to tell people about Jesus. It'll still be scary. Oh, but it's worth it. It's worth it. The most revealing thing about us is what we believe in Jesus. And may there be more people invited into the worship of Christ because of Trinity Walla Walla this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your son, for giving us a sign, for providing us with with your salvation, your very own son, beloved, treasured. Lord, may our trust be not in ourselves, nor in our ability to keep the law, nor in our goodness, but in him. That we would understand that that he has fully taken the, the measure of the consequence and the discipline and the punishment for those who believe. And that when we come to him in faith and receive what he has done for us, receive him himself, we know that he has, uh, he has received everything that we deserve and we will receive everything he deserves. Lord, thank you for raising us up to the heights of glory and seating us in the heavenly places. 
Thank you that we can have this sure and certain hope of what the future holds so that we might know that, that our future in life and in death is secure. And we might have no reason to fear. Lord, may we be wise, but also bold in showing the world around us that, that there is no reason to fear death. Because we know death simply delivers us to you. Lord, we ask that this year you would move us outward in great boldness to tell the world about what you have done for us. To, to invite others to look into the gospel and see the glory and majesty that you have through Jesus Christ. Lord, may there be more worshipers at the end of 2021 because you are using us providentially to draw people to yourself. Lord, we don't save anybody. We know that, we confess that. We don't have the power to do that. We can't even save ourselves. But you have called us to speak of Christ, to tell others about him, to invite others to take a look into the gospel and become worshipers. May, they, may, may there be more worshipers in this city and in the world because of what you're doing through us this year. Maybe for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name.